0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a Senior Fellow and the Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa: politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Entrepreneurship refers to the process of creating a new enterprise or business and bearing any of the risks with the view of making profit. There are four distinct types of entrepreneurial organizations, small businesses, scalable startups, large companies and social entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship plays a key role in any economy using the skills and initiative necessary to anticipate needs and bringing good new ideas to the market. In Africa, entrepreneurship has been part of life since the beginning at all levels Entrepreneurship has supplemented family income, funded children's education, and helped entire nations get by. In many countries, entrepreneurship has sustained informal economy, which is often larger than the documented formal economy. For all its virtues and contributions, however, no country can entrepreneur its way to economic development. Entrepreneurship does not and cannot substitute for good public policy or national leadership. Joining me on Into Africa today is Rahama Wright. Rahama is a social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of beauty, policy, and international development. After serving in the Peace Corps, she launched She Yelin, a social impact company that creates living wage jobs for women in Ghana through the manufacturing of shea butter-based body care products. Her entrepreneurial journey spans bootstrapping to land distribution with Whole Foods Market, MGM Resorts, and most recently, Macy's. The brand has been featured in a variety of media outlets, including O, The Opera Magazine, The Washington Post, and CNBC Africa. Rahama is also the founder of Pop-Up Collaborative, a collective of women and minority-owned businesses in the D.C. metro area that are part of the Made in D.C. program. The goal of the collective is to provide inclusive business opportunities that address gender and racial inequality. During the Obama administration, Rahama was appointed to the Presidential Advisory Council on Doing Business in Africa and is currently serving a third term on the council. Good morning, Rama, and welcome.
1: Good morning, Vivemba. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We are really delighted that we can talk to you about such a fascinating topic, which is entrepreneurship. Today, we would like to talk about a few things. Your journey into entrepreneurship, the motivation of that, how you face the challenges and limitations that come with this path that you're blazing for yourself, and of course, the role of public policy and national leadership. Just how did you get involved in entrepreneurship? You said you were in the Peace Corps. Where did you serve? And how did this inform your current situation?
1: Yeah. So in college, if anyone ever told me I would be an entrepreneur, I would have been like, how do you sell entrepreneur? Being a business owner was never on my radar. I actually wanted to become a foreign service officer and worked for the State Department. So I studied international affairs. I interned at the State Department. I interned at the American Embassy in Burkina Faso. And my career trajectory was very clear for me at that time. And it wasn't until I served in Mali as a Peace Corps volunteer and worked at a community health center that things really started changing for me. I am Ghanaian-American, so Ghanaian on my mom's side. And so I'd always been interested in African-related issues. I grew up in upstate New York, but my family traveled quite often. And I knew that I wanted to do something related to Africa. I did not know what. And I had never, prior to being in the Peace Corps, I'd never lived in a rural environment before. I'd, I'd never lived in a village. And so as my first time straight out of college, living in a village... And working at this community health center, I saw a lot of disparities that just didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me that a woman would come to the health center and wouldn't be able to pay for medicine or basic necessities. And so I started researching income generating activities. I spent quite a lot of time. With women, as you know, women are always organized in groups, whether they're informal groups or formalized groups, like associations. And so I spent quite a lot of time with the women in my community, interviewing them, learning about how they made money. And as you know, many of them were subsistence farmers. They lived off the land and whatever they made from the land, they would use for their family or sell in the marketplace. And I also started seeing this work around shea butter production. And so I knew about shea butter because I had bought shea butter in the US. You know, As a young child growing up, I loved going to the mall and going into beauty shops and trying all of the products. So I had seen lots of products that had shea in it. Never knew that shea butter came from Africa. Never knew that women were a part of the global shea butter supply chain. And actually seeing them harvesting the fruit, bringing it into their community, taking out the seeds, hand extracting the oil contained in the seeds and seeing that process, which is a very traditional process, I knew that there was a disconnect between what these women were doing in their local communities and what was happening in the global marketplace. It didn't match up for me. And so as I started learning about the constraints women had with making Shea and bringing Shea to the marketplace, I had this brilliant idea. I was like, oh, I can help you figure out a way to get these products out to the marketplace. Now, I was in my early 20s. I had no idea how to do this. I had never raised money. I knew nothing about product development. I'd never even taken a business course. And so I was overly confident to say the least. And when I came back to the US in 05, initially I started a 501c3 nonprofit because I wanted to work on the supply side. I was really interested in figuring out how to help create an entire ecosystem around how women made these products. So I spent quite a bit of time on the supply side, doing things like organizing cooperatives, providing women access to capital, getting women access to production equipment, getting them access to training because what is sold locally, the quality is not necessarily the same as bringing it into a global market, bringing it into, for example, a Whole Foods. And so I spent a lot of time doing that work just on the supply side. And it wasn't until 2014 when I pivoted to get products into production, into development and manufacturing retail-ready products, and then figuring out how to get those products into U.S. retailers.
0: Okay, so that's very fascinating. You come back from the Peace Corps. You learned from the women you helped at the health center. You were not in the economic development cone of the Peace Corps. No. You were in the public <laughs> health cone of the Peace Corps. And I presume you paid attention to details around you. You come back to the US, how do you literally get involved? What are the steps you take? Can you tell us about the first steps you take? I mean, from your dreams, from being invincible as all 20 years something are (laughs) now to facing (laughs) the reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I honestly did not know the first step of starting a business. So I spent a lot of time Googling. I wish I could say it was much more complicated than that, but I just used the internet and I would Google how to make shea butter. I would Google Benefits of shea. I would Google packaging, you know, different ways of packaging and design and labeling and all of that stuff. And so there was a learning curve for sure. And initially, as I mentioned, I was really working on developing a nonprofit model. And so I would Google things like how to build a cooperative, how to get training for women and equipment for shea production. So I was spending a lot of time just learning. And I think for people who are like, oh, you know, I want to start a business, I don't know how. When you don't have any money, right? At that time, I was in my early 20s. I had no money to my name. I had just came back from two years of volunteering. So I'd not made income for over two years. I didn't know anyone. I moved to a new city. I knew one person in Washington, D.C. from my college who lived here, who was going to American University. She was getting her law degree. And so, you know, I didn't have a network. I really didn't know how to fundraise. I just started figuring things out. And I think that if someone finds themselves in the same type of situation where they don't have a lot to begin with, the first thing I advise is start with your knowledge, become an expert because that's free you can spend time learning you can spend time researching you can spend time reaching out to people getting informational interviews and sitting down with people who can talk with you i would say i spent my first two two and a half years just doing that learning as much as i could and also just talking to everyone telling everyone about my idea i think a lot of times people say oh don't share your idea keep it close to you you know you don't want anyone to copy you that really didn't apply in my situation i told everyone who would listen to me. If I was at the bus stop, I would tell people what I was doing, grocery store, airport, in my church. Some people didn't even know my name. They just knew Shea Butter because I talked about Shea Butter so much. And I think that actually created this connection where people associated me with this product and with this issue. And so if there were resources, they would send them my way. They would send me a note, send me an email, a text, say, hey, Rama, I saw this program and I know that you're working on this issue. Maybe this would be good for you. And that's how I was able to get into Oprah Magazine and, you know, people just associating me with this project and this idea and sending resources as they came. And so in the beginning, it was a lot of just kind of increasing my own knowledge, telling people about my idea, networking, networking, networking. I know that we were both in DC around the same time, spent so much time going to networking events, business conferences, international events, Africa-related events, and that started to build a community around me. And so those were some of the very early days What I spent quite a bit of my time doing.
0: Okay, so if we hear you right, it's all about, first of all, having faith in what you're doing and then educating yourself on this. How successful was your building of this non-profit? So you got that status, you built that. And then how do you move from there to becoming for-profit? And then please tell us about how you link that back to Ghana or to Mali, because Mm -hmm. you studied in Mali, but now a lot of you, if I understand correctly, what you're doing is actually based in Ghana.
1: So starting a nonprofit is great, but one of the big challenges I encountered was it was really hard to get money. It was really hard to get funds. And so I would send out letters of interest, you know, so usually you you would send out a letter and say, Hey, this is my project. These are the issues I'm dealing with. And I would send them to tons of like foundations and funding organizations, and I would get tons of rejections back. (laughs) And so What I discovered is that a startup nonprofit is actually incredibly hard to get funding. And part of the reason is that, you know, as a nonprofit, you're contributing to a social good. And so when you're a startup in the nonprofit space, it's high risk. And so a lot of funders will give money to a fully established nonprofits and organizations. There's not a lot of money out there for early stage nonprofits. And if you don't already have a huge community of people who can do individual donations or figure out a strategy around that, it's really hard to get started. And so for me, I didn't have that. As I mentioned, I was very new to the city that I had just moved to in DC, and I was starting to build my network. So I would work So I would work a full-time job and I would use the money from my job to fund my organization. And that's what I did for many years.
0: That's a real level of love. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: And it wasn't until I spoke with an advisor and they were like, no, what you're doing could be a business opportunity and you can get investors. Why don't you do that? And, you know, I will be honest, when I was thinking about it, I was like, no, I want to be a nonprofit because this is a social issue. And this was before social entrepreneurship was really popular. I would say social entrepreneurship and using business to do good has been something that has been more popularized in recent days. But back then, I think there was not a lot being done around social entrepreneurship. And this was when I say back in the day, 2005. So I just didn't know if that was going to be something that was realistic, but I explored it. Like I said, I researched, I started going online, I started talking to people. And I started learning that, yeah, there were companies and organizations and investors who invest specifically around good. And if you have a business model that can also show a social impact or addressing a social need, there's actually funding out there for it.
0: Tell us about that portion. How do you do your business plan and who do you contact first and what happens?
1: Yeah. So for me, I use the SBA Sport program. So there are a lot of resources here in the U.S. where you can go and get an advisor, get a consultant for free, and they will help you with whatever need you have. And so the SBA score program was how I built my first business plan. And the score program is basically a network of former executives who have retired. And in their retirement, they are volunteering to support small business owners and so you can get a score counselor to help you with a marketing plan to help you with your business plan to help you with operations and you'll actually be matched with someone who did that for over 30 years and Mm -hmm. so I had an SBA score counselor who helped me with my first business plan and also helped me with my first financial model So my advice to people when they're really trying to start in the early days, try to tap into as many free resources as possible because money is going to be tight and there are resources out there that can help you. And then in terms of, I'm sure your next question is going to be, how did you pitch and get funding?
0: (laughs) That's exactly it. And who was it who was so kind to to help this missionary?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so when it comes to funding, honestly, it's your network. It's networking. It's people. It's who can introduce you to the person who is a fit, who is a match. As I mentioned before, I spend a lot of time networking. I spend a lot of time developing relationships and not those types of relationships that are very transactional. I'm talking about really investing your time in developing strong relationships where the relationship is not about, oh, I do something for you. You do something for me. It's not transactional but actually relationships that are value aligned and where you care about the same things and when you develop those deep level relationships, the people in your community will want you to be successful and they will provide introductions. They will help you, guide you and put, ultimately put you in front of the right people who also align with you. And so for me, my first investor, I actually met through my church community and someone who went to my church, knew someone who was developing this fund and they were looking for people working in Africa. And so that connection was made and it was actually around the same time we had two of our Shea producers from Ghana here and we all went to the pitch together so it was myself and two women from our cooperative and we went to New York and went and pitched and they were with me and they saw the pitch and they got to ask the women questions as well I know one of your questions was how do we create that link with our communities and how did I go from Mali to Ghana Community is at the foundation of our business model, I would not be here today if I was not representing the women in our community, I wouldn't even have started Shailene if women weren't at the foundation, and they're through the entire supply chain. They're not just a group of people in a random village that we work with. We've actually brought them here to the U.S. They've sat down and met with our buyers. They've gone into Whole Foods with me. They've presented their own case and their own dreams and their passions, et cetera. And that, to the core, is what Shea is about. It's really about figuring out how to incorporate women through our entire supply chain. And so when I first started Shailene, yes, I was working with communities in Mali, but then as you're probably aware, there was political instability in the 2011, 2012 time period. And as an early stage organization, I didn't have the capacity to continue working there. I just didn't have the on the ground support needed to work in a place that was experiencing a little bit of insecurity and destabilization. And so I had always had this vision of creating a regional block and helping women in Mali with women in Burkina, as well as Ghana. And so I had developed those relationships long before. And so when it looked like it was gonna be difficult to continue to work in Mali, I had already started working with communities in Northern Ghana. And so I just shifted my focus. So it was actually a fairly seamless transition because my goal was always to work regionally and not country-based. And so when I moved and did that shift to actually building a business model and structuring it like a social enterprise and really in the fabric of our foundation is this goal to financially empower women, I wanted the women in our communities that we worked with to also be able to see the end of the supply chain, to know what it's like to walk into a store and see a product that used an ingredient that you made with your cooperative. And so that was always something that was really important to me.
0: Did you tap into cooperatives that existed already and you showed up mm. in Ghana or in Mali and pitch your idea to them, to these women mm. who already worked together, produced this material, but probably didn't have the right market or limited markets mm. only that they had. And then you became that bridge or how did that happen? You told us eloquently about your passion, how you raised the funds, the business model, the SBC workshop mm. and all that. But now we're still curious, how do you cross that bridge to the Atlantic and all the way to the Sahel and all the way to Ghana? Even though you're Ghanaian, American, but obviously you live in New York, in Washington, D.C. These people had to develop some trust to work with you.
1: You said the key word trust. And when I travel, I'm in the community. I'm not in a fancy hotel in the capital and sending representatives into the community. I'm in the community. I'm sleeping in the same place the women are sleeping with. I'm eating the same food they're eating. We're discussing the same issues and problems. And the other thing that I think is really important, because I recognize I do have privilege being part of the diaspora. I do have privilege having an American passport and being able to travel in and out, right? And so when I'm in the community, I make sure it's very clear that I'm a partner, but I'm not there to replace any sort of local talent or local knowledge. So having the women in their own leadership roles is very critical and is very important. And so I play the role of the connector, the facilitator, but when I am there, it truly is driven by the women and the structure that they have set. What I do is I help to strengthen. I help to provide the resources when necessary, but the leadership, because I don't live there, the leadership has to be local. It cannot be imported in. It has to be something that is very locally driven. And the way that I've met the women's groups that I work with has been a combination of introductions, meaning that people, you know, say, hey, I know a community outside of Damongo in Northern Ghana. Would you be interested in connecting with them? So there have been times where it's come through that way. And these women are already organized into cooperatives. And then the other way is women are not in a cooperative. They're loosely organized, but they want to be in a cooperative. And we work with them as well to help them with structuring their paperwork, helping them establish their cooperative guidelines, their bylaws, et cetera. But it's always done through a local partner, meaning that someone in the community, someone who's from there, right, who speaks the local language is the one leading it. And so again, I make sure that it's very clear. I'm not a shape producer. They're the ones that are making the product. There's limitations in terms of what I can do, but I do know the value I can bring to the table is that connection. The value I can bring to the table is understanding the marketplace. And so that's how I really try to operate. It's like they bring their skills and their resources and their talent. I supplement it with my resources, my talent and network. And then we build a model that's really focused on impact. I want to make sure people know we are designing a program in Washington and New York and then going into the community and trying to implement it. It really starts locally first.
0: How do you then take that product and turn into what an American market will be interested in? Some of the names that you have connected with You know, Whole Foods Market, MGM Resort, Macy's, those are not third class. These are first league, major league we're talking about. So how do you convince those partners to be with you, to be your allies in this case? And also, how have you circumvented the issue of financial exclusion or inclusion? Mm. You're obviously bringing product that are not American, and that can already be a big hurdle.
1: No, well, I say African products are also first class and people just don't know. <laughs> There's so much amazing products coming from the continent. And the other thing too, is that many Americans and many people you know, in these markets, they are consuming products that come from Africa. Chocolate, shea butter, diamonds, art, the list goes on and on and on. But the problem is a lot of times these products and the way they come to market are not benefiting African people. So for me, that is really important for me to address within my supply chain because even turning on our cell phones, we can't turn on our cell phones if we're not using minerals coming from Africa. The world is very used to consuming African products and African resources. However, what is not happening is the local benefit within African countries. And we have to change that. We have to shift the narrative. We have to stop thinking that if it's coming from Africa, it's poor quality. If it's coming from Africa, it's not good enough. No, that's not true.
0: How do we do that?
1: Uh, we do that by, and the way that I've been doing it with Shea Aline is telling the, the real story. Most people, honestly, Mavimba, I've been doing this for so many years. I will still meet people who say, I had no idea Shea Butter comes from Africa. Today, in 2022. People still say that. And I'm like, you cannot actually find shea butter anywhere else in the world. The tree only grows in Africa. It grows in about 21 countries. There are roughly 16 million women, African women, black women who are part of the supply chain. And so telling the truth, telling the story and connecting the dots so people actually know where their product is coming from is the first step. The second step is creating an ecosystem where local community members can actually take advantage of their local resources, add value, because everything I listed before, the value is not being added in Africa. It's being added outside. It's being added in Asia. It's being added in Europe.
0: that's how some people think those products come from Asia or from elsewhere. Exactly.
1: Yeah. There are no cocoa farms in Belgium. Why are we all think Belgium chocolate is the best chocolate? Cocoa comes from Africa. Mm. 70% of the world's cocoa comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast, right? Mm. But people are so disconnected from the true supply chain and value chain. They just see the label on the shelf and they think that, oh, well, this comes from Europe. This comes from Asia. No, it comes from Africa. So that's the first thing that you have to do is dispel a lot of the untruths when it comes to how these products are made and brought to market. And then the second is developing that ecosystem so that local communities can take advantage of their local resources and identify market opportunity. And that's where the third key point is, which is there is market opportunity, but the disconnect is local communities are not benefiting from that market opportunity. And this is where companies like mine, organizations like mine bridge that gap. Because I sit here, I sit where the market is. I know and I see, I know what can do well in Whole Foods. I know what can do well in Macy's. And I have the ability to connect with decision makers at those corporations to get them to buy into my product. But it has to look a certain way. I can't put shea butter in a coconut shell and say, well, you put this in Macy's. It has to be packaged in a certain way.
0: I think this is a conversation that we can write books on this thing, teach classes, workshops, right? In your bio when I read it, it says you sit right there, you work at the intersection of beauty policy and international development. As we're wrapping up, what are the policy challenges that you see on both Shores of the Atlantic, the shores that we are sitting on—you and myself sitting on the side here—but also the African side where you operate with these cooperatives. So, what are the challenges of accessing the market there, and the challenges of policy-wise? I mean, you sit on this council of doing business in Africa. The Africa doesn't do business not just with itself; it's with the rest of us.
1: Yeah, in terms of the policy changes, I think one that really needs to happen across the continent. So, I know that. All African countries are different. We can't say Africa and it's the same. Like everyone has their different cultures, their languages, all of that stuff, right? And the resources. But a common thing I've seen, and I've been blessed enough to travel to 20 countries in Africa. And so I truly feel like a pan-Africanist. And one of the things that I observe consistently, regardless of where I am, is that there needs to be policies that create an enabling environment for manufacturing to happen in Africa before resources are exported globally. That's incredibly important. Too many of Africa's resources, natural resources, are shipped in raw material form, exported out before any value is done. And then it enters the global marketplace. And the reality is when you don't add value, you don't get the fullness of benefiting from the upside of the supply chain. If I give you a shea seed, you can't do anything with it. But if I give you a bar of soap, you can use that bar of soap. So one of the things that I am a strong advocate for is figuring out how to create manufacturing capabilities. And this is something that can be supported through local policy. It can also be something that can be supported through public-private partnerships. And I want to illustrate an example of one of the projects that I'm working on right now that sits at that intersection. So I'm working with D.C. government, the D.C. local government here to develop a manufacturing facility that will help small businesses in the U.S. who want to enter the beauty industry, but they have challenges and constraints. And they have challenges around ingredient supply, understanding the chemistry, packaging, marketing, etc., So we are creating a space, a physical space that will address those issues. And the government is coming on board to support this project. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, how does this connect to Africa? Well, it does, because a lot of the ingredients and a lot of the resources that you can use in plant-based beauty manufacturing can be sourced from African communities. So instead of a woman shipping out shea seeds and the shea butter is made in India, she can make the shea butter there adding value, increasing her income, and then connecting it to other small producers who need those ingredients. And when you are able to go from just one producer to 10, to 20, to 30, that means now you can get to scale because you're creating community around Mm -hmm. ethical sourcing, value production of ingredients and connecting it to a market.
0: So how big will this manufacturer be?
1: It's going to be pretty sizable. We're estimating we'll be able to do at minimum about 100,000 units per month.
0: Okay. Very good. Very good. good. Of production. (laughs) Impressive. Congratulations.
1: (laughs) Thank you. We're still in the production side. We'll open early next year. I'm very excited about it. Early next year,
0: we'll be here soon enough.
1: You know, I don't want to forget to also make sure that your audience understands the reason we're doing all of this is because of diversity and inclusion. And it's about changing systemic poverty that is happening in so many of these rural communities. So when we build these supply chains, adding value, increasing manufacturing capabilities, we're also increasing income. There's no point in doing all of this if people cannot see a change in the amount of income that they're making. And so with our business model, we actually can show that women, when they have access to the ecosystem, when they're able to create a value-added product, when they're able to connect that product to the marketplace, they can increase their income five times their country's minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And that number is not an arbitrary number. That's actually data collection that we've done by interviewing the women, learning about where they were, where did they start and where are they now after working within our supply chain. And I think for what you're talking about in terms of policy changes, we need to be able to stop saying these problems are too hard and they're too difficult. It's always been this way. It'll always be this way and start really looking at innovation around how we incorporate local communities into these value chains. And it requires local government, the private sector, and it also requires some of these international development organizations to change the way that they operate and the way that they do business.
0: So it's incorporating local government and national government on both sides of the Atlantic in this case, not just in the side of the US, but this is what I was driving at with policy, African policy should be very front and center of this, right? So that the U.S. side complement and they complement each other. One thing I would like to ask is what she yelene means. We know what she is, but yelene, what that means. And then on this program here, we always talk about the gap. There's the perception of a place. You can refer to this a little bit, the perception of the place. You look at Mali, you look at Ghana, you look at this market, she you look at the women, People may say it's too complicated to get involved. What is the gap between the perception that people may have of this market that you've described over the last several minutes and the reality of it? If you had the magic wand, what will you tell us and what will you do?
1: When I was in Mali, I learned Bambara and Yaleen means light and hope. So we bring light to the issue of the lack of inclusion of these communities, right? So we're kind of peeling back the veil so you can see, but also hope through our business model, by showing that you can actually make change in these communities as well. And in terms of the perception versus reality, when I first started Shailene and I was back here and telling people about it, some people will be like, oh, shea butter. Shea butter isn't good. It smells bad. You know, there's no way you can get that into the marketplace. No one will buy it. And here's the thing, there is this misconception and this perception that anything that comes from Africa is not good, that it's not quality enough. And I think I've proven the opposite. People actually love shea butter in its purest form. And I think this is not just in the shea industry. I think this is across so many different products on the continent where people think if it's made in Africa, if it's made in an African country, it's not going to meet quality standards. That is not true. And every day I communicate to our customers and I communicate to our partners, how a product is made is critical to its benefits, both to where it comes from, the people, the benefits on the people of where it comes from, as well as the customer. If I created a product that took advantage of your labor, that underpaid you, that didn't treat you well, that didn't give you the resources that you need, probably it's not going to be the best product because of the system and the ecosystem around you. If I change that and give you access to the right tools, to the right equipment, to the right training, to the right packaging, to the right storage, and then I brand it well, I make sure it meets standards and I bring that to market, it's not going to be the same product. How a product is made matters. And so this misconception that anything coming from a village, someone even told me a village woman in Africa can't make something good. They're illiterates. Someone told me that when I first started Shailene and I was shocked. First of all, I was in my early twenties. I'm like, why would you even say that to a young person (laughs) who has so much hope for change? And I disagreed with them. And I continue to disagree with anyone who thinks that an African product is not quality. I always go back to how it's being made. The resources around supporting quality manufacturing is very, very important. There is a difference between a machine processed shea butter that's using chemicals and a shea butter that's being made by a woman in her community using a tradition that's hundreds of years old, passed down from mother to daughter with no chemicals, a natural process, using pure ingredients. That is better for my customer. That's better for the person going into Whole Foods or Macy's to pick up a product to use on their skin and hair. And so for me, I prove every day that quality products come out of Africa. And the people who make it deserve, deserve to be paid fairly and deserve to benefit from their labor.
0: Very good. I think it's uh, light and hope, Yelene. I think it's about branding. I think it's about following your passion. I think it's about changing the paradigm. rama Wright, thank you for joining us today. We've learned a lot and we look forward to following your path.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csi.s.org/africa. So long.